What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I'm so excited to be here with Derek Lowe, CEO of Medallion. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You bet. And I want to start this conversation the way I start all of these interviews, which is would love to just hear a little bit about you in your own words. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, very excited to be here and be speaking to you and chatting about um, sort of my my entrepreneurial journey thus far. So I'm originally from Boston, um, so I'm from the East Coast. I grew up in a small-ish town called Lexington, outside of Boston. I went to Yale for college, um, studied computer science there. And I launched into uh, entrepreneurship, I think, kind of by accident, really. I got really into programming in high school. So I, I learned how to code freshman year of high school. And that was a pretty transformative sort of experience for me. And I think is what kind of set me on the path that I'm on now. I got really into making iPhone apps. So my first ever sort of programming course I took was in Java. Uh, I learned how to code in Java. Ended up getting into iPhone programming, um, which back then was the programming language was still Objective-C. Now there's a whole new programming language to build iPhone apps. I got really into that. And that sort of became a, a sort of core theme of kind of my um, sort of life outside of school, you know, it was between high school and college on the night, sort of like nights and weekends. That's what I really loved doing. And by chance, junior summer of college, I was working on an app at that point, I'd probably, you know, built like 25 and did, you know, different apps and scrapped, you know, half of them and, and was working on, on one that really was sticking and applied to Y Combinator. And so that was really the start of my, my professional career is, built this app uh, called Pi that taught me how to code and built it while I was in, in college and ended up actually getting into YC. Originally, actually, was going to drop out of school. This was the se- my senior year. And I remember that my mom was really not cool with that. <laughs> and so I ended up asking YC actually if I could defer. And you know, they were nice about it. They definitely did not guarantee us acceptance, actually. This was, you know, winter 17, deferring to summer 17, if you know how sort of the YC batches work. Um, it's batched, you know, every, every you know, two every year. And so that was that was definitely somewhat nerve-wracking and, and sort of stressful. But we ended up deferring and, and they let us kind of start in summer of 17. So I... I Moved from New Haven to the Bay Area. I'd, I'd never lived anywhere sort of except the Northeast in New England. So that was sort of a big like culture shock and like change, which was kind of interesting in its own right. But yeah, that was the start of my, my sort of professional career. And the high level summary is that we built that company. We, we sort of pivoted, ended up selling it and it was acquired about three years ago. And about two years ago, I started a new company called Medallion, which is, you know, what I'm, what I'm working on now. But that's like the kind of high level, you know, sort of uh, brief background. Okay. There's so much in here that I want to unpack a little bit because you, there's some really key pieces. So you mentioned your mom and that your mom was like, uh, no, 
<laughs> do not drop out of Yale. Your mom and your dad both went to Yale. So they, of course, would have an affinity for the school. And then your father is a professor at MIT. Both of your parents have PhDs, Derek. This is a very, very smart family that you're coming from. Will you talk a little bit about like the role of education in the life of your family? You know, was that always sort of front and center given the paths that your parents had walked or was it, was it more in the background? No, it was, I would say it was in the foreground, but I think in subtle ways, like I think they were very thoughtful about encouraging me to focus on you know, school and on, you know, studying for the SATs and all this kind of stuff that I think I was a pretty normal kid in that, like I hated studying for the SATs. I wasn't actually particularly exceptional naturally yet. Like I didn't just take the SAT once and get a 2400. And so I think like having kind of guidance from my parents on like, these things are important and you should spend time on them. I definitely don't take that for granted. I think, you know, I, I, owe a lot to being very fortunate and being born into yeah a family where education was really prioritized and valued. So yeah, I think that was a big part of my upbringing, even, even if it wasn't mm-hmm. always kind of forced on me per se. I, I think it was done in ways that were sort of subtle. Yeah. Yeah. And so you graduated from Yale in 2017, right? Yeah. So I had to smile when you said I wasn't particularly exceptional. You are so young. You're in your mid-20s and you're on your second company. You're already a serial entrepreneur. And in reality, most founders are often in their mid-40s. But there is this mythology that um, founding companies is something that really young people do. And I think it's amazing that this early in your career that you've already founded two startups you mentioned that in between Pi and Medallion, it sounded like you you perhaps took a year off between those two. You sold Pi three years ago and started Medallion two years ago. Is that right? Yeah. Well, so so the backstory is so Pi started out as an educational app to teach mm-hmm. about it. And we went through Y Combinator. So we moved out here right after graduating. And actually three weeks into Y Combinator, we were featured on the front page of the app store. Like, So I think it was nationwide. I can't exactly remember, but definitely in the U.S., I remember actually finding out that we were on the front page of the app store from a friend of mine who was like, hey, I just opened the, you know, the app store and like, you know, this is you. And so that was pretty exciting. I remember there was a, a YC dinner. Yeah, at, the, at the time, it was in person. You had to move out, right? And it'd be physically as close to Mountain View as possible. And they would do these dinners. And, and there was this, I think, kickoff dinner. And Drew Houston, the CEO and you know, founder of Dropbox, was was speaking. I wish you missed that dinner because we were featured on the app store. We, we found out that we were featured like, I don't know, three hours before. And we realized that our user base was like, I don't know, 10 or 100xing. I forget exactly. I think it was maybe 10xing. We were at about maybe 20,000. It was going to a quarter million. And so that was a kind of crazy thing that happened. And then a few companies actually tried to buy us. And so we were kind of then for a month or so navigating, you know, should we sell the company? Should we not? We're like, just getting going. We ended up not selling the company, raising a small seed round, which was only about 500K. So very, very small, certainly by today's standards. And and essentially, you know, ended up trying to, you know, keep growing the business. And it was really tough because education, and actually I'd be really curious to hear sort of like your own experience here, obviously running a successful education company. What we found is B2C is really tough. It's very hard to monetize and it's hard to build a big business. And so we ended up trying out this business model where we would actually try and place 
users of our app at companies because we realized actually in the recruiting space there's a lot of money there you know the, the, the average right like software engineer uh, head headhunter makes 20 percent off of you know an engineer's first year salary average salaries i don't know maybe 120k i don't know what it is today but you know that's that's tens of thousands of dollars we thought that, that might be you know an interesting path and so we actually built this uh sort of quiz this like assessment inside our mobile app that was adaptive. So it would get harder as you did well, and it would get easier as you were doing poorly, sort of like the LSAT. And it would actually be able to bifurcate and or sort of you know, just like classify our user base and show us people that were actually already engineers versus people that were not. And we could then target those people that were engineers and try and actually place them at companies. So we, we I think we made one placement and it was like an intern. So we made like a few thousand dollars. We tried this for a month and we found it was also really, really hard. And we kind of discovered that, you know, trying to build a two-sided marketplace where you really don't have either side is kind of impossible. And so we, again, kind of were trying to figure out, okay, how do we keep making money? How do we survive as a business? I really, you know, this can't fail. And so what I kind of discovered is that there's actually a market for companies to, to actually buy assessment software. And so we ended up pivoting the business to B2B. And we created this platform that would allow companies to administer coding challenges to assess their engineering talent. And so we essentially, you know, built that business up to almost a million in, in revenue. We were essentially profitable. We were only five people. And then we ended up selling the business and getting acquired. And all the way back to your question now, we I ended up staying on with the company and I was a director of product there for, for some time after uh, the, the company was acquired. And, um, and so that's actually what I was doing in between. Gotcha. Okay. And Pi was acquired by Hired. And you said something really interesting. You said this company can't fail. What was driving that feeling? Why why did you feel like Pi cannot fail? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it just comes from this sort of internal drive and internal motivation of this feeling that it needs something needs to succeed and you have to keep working as hard as you possibly can to make that happen that's the feeling it's just like this this sort of um yeah i guess internal ambition and confidence that as long as we put in the effort and really put in the time eventually we'll figure something out and it might not be super successful and you know our 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 end you know eventual exit it's not like we sold the business for a billion dollars like where you know we we didn't achieve you know a certain level of success but i think we were happy and sort of content with where we landed given yeah, we didn't actually really honestly go into it with any kind of real expectation. It was sort of just this fun side project that turned into a company. And I think consistently we always were viewing every opportunity as sort of a training ground, really as like a learning opportunity. And that's what was super fun is my first job out of, out of college and and everything was like sort of like a new experience and and that made it just really, really kind of stimulating and energizing. And so I think even when we were encountering difficult times and hard periods where we couldn't, we weren't making money, even if we were growing, it was still really exciting because it was all new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you had this very early success and you could have stayed at Hired, you know, and just like continue building from there. But a year later you jumped and started medallion what was it what was driving you to get back in there and you know and start something again from scratch because 
I'm sure you've heard the same statistics that I've heard, which is <laughs> startups almost always fail. You know, like it's very unusual to succeed actually when you're starting it from scratch. So you could have stayed safe and instead you went back out and started something new. And I'm curious about your mindset with respect to that decision. Yeah, I definitely, it was not like something where I had to think about it really hard. I knew I wanted to start another company. It's just what I love doing and there's really nothing like it. I think it's the combination of being able to work on the, the problem that you want to work on with the people that you want to work on it with. That's pretty huge and it's it's unique. It's really hard to get that experience anywhere else. There's obviously a lot of other motivators, but those are two of the really core ones. And I think it was also this feeling of, you know, we achieved a certain level of success, but by, by certainly by some people's standards, very, very moderate amount of success. And so I think it was this this feeling that, you know, we could do a lot more and, and have a bigger impact on on people. That was another sort of core driver with pies. It, I felt like we could meaningfully impact people's lives in, in, in terms of getting them excited about learning how to code, which is a really, really valuable, can be life-altering, you know, kind of skill set. And with Medallion, the connection to people is that we are enabling healthcare providers to operate more effectively. So we're eliminating a lot of the operational burden so that healthcare providers, doctors, clinicians, these healthcare companies can reach more patients. And the end result is that we are reducing the cost of healthcare in the US and we're enabling higher quality care and better access. So I think that that was the other big thing for me is working on something that feels meaningful. Mm-hmm. And before we started the formal part of this conversation, I was mentioning to you that I'm, I come from a family of doctors and all they want to do is treat their patients. You know, it's such a service oriented profession. The last thing that they want to do is anything related to the operations necessary. So I, when I saw Medallion, I, I immediately understood how important it was. But can you talk to us a little bit more, you know, going back two years to when you started the company, how did you recognize that there was an opportunity? What what occurred to you that this this might be a space where Medallion could really grow and add value? Yeah, so the backstory is that a then acquaintance, now now friend, um, Zach, the CEO of Roe, I was talking to him about actually a different unrelated idea in the healthcare space. And out of that conversation, I ended up asking him what pain points he'd experienced scaling Roe. And he talked about the challenge of licensing his clinicians in multiple states. Because if you're a doctor or a nurse, you have to be licensed actually where the patient is. And so historically, if you were a doctor, you really only needed one license because you were primarily seeing patients in one, in one geographic location, like one state. But now with telehealth, you see patients in many, many more states. And as a result, there's this new administrative burden of having to license them in lots of states. And so he told me about this problem and, and sort of explained all the different aspects of it and you know how much they would pay us to solve the problem and and talked a little bit about his own ideas on you know once you solve this problem really well all the different things that you can do afterwards and so i basically did a lot of research on this space and got really excited and got to conviction that yeah there there definitely is first and foremost a pain point here for any company that is launching telehealth services, there's no good solutions out there. At least they weren't, you know, prior to, to Medallion existing that were tech enabled. And really the 
the underlying asset that you create is this data asset on clinicians. And it turns out that there's all these other kind of operational tasks that pivot around the same data model. And so once you become the system of record for this clinician data, you can then actually solve a lot of other problems. So that's that's what got me really excited about, about tackling this. So I recently interviewed another founder. His name is Othman Laraki. He's he's the CEO and founder of a health tech company called Color. And mm-hmm. before he founded Color, he spent his entire career, he was also like you, an entrepreneur. He spent time at Google and at Twitter. And he was talking about what an asset it was actually to start a company in a completely different field, you know, and having a beginner's mindset and having fresh eyes on what the problem space looked like. Do you have thoughts around that too? Because as as we were talking, Derek, many of our breakliners are also pivoting into tech or a related field for the first time coming from somewhere else. And we view that as an enormous advantage. But I think when you're in the middle of it, you know, it's sometimes nice to get a little bit of additional validation. So Othman was really saying like, gosh, I could just look at this problem from a completely different mindset than the one that was deeply embedded in the industry before I got there. Yeah. Well, actually, interestingly, so Color is a customer of ours. Great. And actually, Alad Gill, his co-founder, is one of our investors. So we're definitely big fans of, of Color. I think it's a really good point. I do definitely think it depends very much on what it is you're doing. So one of the advantages is that you come in with an open mind. And so you don't have preconceived notions of what's possible. And so then you sort of investigate and question everything. And I think that that is quite valuable. And the other thing that's valuable is I think taking experience and skill from a different industry and being able to apply it to another one that also I think like provides the opportunity to solve problems in that industry in a different way. I do think though that you can't discount the importance of experience in a domain. And I do think that it's possible certainly in terms of building a company the the, the founder doesn't always need to have that experience. I think as long as they, they recognize the gap and can fill it through bring people that do have that experience into the company. That would be my my take on it. And when you were talking about Medallion, you mentioned two primary drivers for starting the company. One was around working on the problem that you were interested in solving. And then the other was around and doing that with people that you really enjoyed being around. Can you talk to us a little bit about your team at Medallion and the culture that you all are building together and, you know, how you are thinking deeply about building out the foundation for this company to continue growing. Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of unique things about, I think, our our team. One is that actually I've been lucky enough to actually hire a number of friends into the company, people that I've actually known for many, many years. There's, I think, at least four other people from my high school, actually, that work at the company. And there's at least two, actually, no, three, I think, people from college that I was quite close to that work at the company as well. I think we've built an environment that cares a lot about results and into producing, but not at the expense of 
people's well-being. Like I, th- I think what, one thing that we say a lot is is sustained performance. Like we care a lot about people being able to produce excellent work over a long period of time. I mean, this is not a new thing, but I think people really do do their best work in years you know, two, three, four. And so being able to retain people in those later years, I think is really, really critical. And people work at different paces. People have different personal sort of, um, you know, battery levels or, you know, sort of can work at different rates. And I think building a team and culture that supports, that's flexible and that supports those different styles and sort of capacities is pretty important. And I think we've done a good job of that so far. It'll be really interesting to see how we need to change and adapt to maintain that as we go from 100, you know, 150-ish people to 500 over time and 1,000. It was interesting to me that you first mentioned being able to hire a lot of people that you were already close to. And I think this is a really common practice for startups because you just need help, you know, and, and it's really natural to reach out to your personal network first as a starting point. How have, have those folks meshed with the other employees that you've hired where you didn't have a previous connection, you know, and, and how do you make sure that there's not an insider outsider sort of element within the company? Yeah, no, it's something really important. Something that I thought a lot about. I think we're really careful. Certainly the other thing is we're, we're fairly remote too. So that, that actually, mm-hmm. it's a quite different dynamic. I think it would be actually be a yes. lot harder if we were all in person because mm-hmm. then inevitably if you've got groups of sort of, people that like come in, they already know each other. And I'm not sort of the only one that would experience that. For example, like our head of CS, she's brought in, I think at least three or four people she's worked with prior in person, like, you know, sort of at, at another company where, where they were all co-located. And I think it actually would make it harder to get some of these things right, right? you know, so, so that people don't feel left out and, and that people don't feel like there are, you know, clicks or sort of like clubs. Because I do think it's important that people don't feel that way, that everybody feels included and on sort of an equal playing field. So I think we've actually kind of just naturally been able to prevent a lot of that by being remote as, as in, you know, you just sort of don't, don't have that. And certainly as it relates to, yeah, just like other forms of equality, we are, we're really careful not to sort of let those things kind of like bias performance reviews and expectations of what people, what we expect of people, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, understanding of space and place and who gets to be where in a physical environment is really important. I remember one of my first bosses, she was the only woman in a leadership position on this team. And all the dudes had a meeting in a glass walled conference room. And I was watching her watch them. And I could just see the thought in her mind, like, why am I not (laughs) in there? with everybody else. So I think that there is a really interesting democratizing element to remote work as well. So Medallion has raised a couple rounds of funding at this point, two years in, and I'd love to talk to you about what what you're looking for in your founders and what advice you have for, for other people who, you know, are thinking about, you know, searching for investment for their organizations. Like, what has been really important for you? Are there red flags or issues that you'd encourage people to steer clear from? Would love to just learn more about your experience with that domain as well. 
Well, I think we're really fortunate to work with amazing investors. We've got a really excellent group of investors, both angel investors and institutional investors. Box Group and Sousa Ventures co-led our, our seed round. They were our first two institutional investors. Our Series A um, was led by um, Spark Capital and Optum Ventures. And then our Series B was led by Sequoia Capital. And I think the thing that we've looked for at every turn are investors that really understand our business. And there are some sort of like unique aspects about it in that, you know, we are an operationally intense business. We are a healthcare business that's going to have to, you know, sell an infrastructure solution across a lot of different market segments from insurance payers to health systems to digital health companies. And so I think finding investors that really yeah, get sort of some of the unique aspects of the company because some of those unique pieces are good and some of them are bad. Just like every company has right there, you know, unique advantages and disadvantages. Um, so I think we've been fortunate in, in, in finding investors that really get those things. And then also healthcare focused investors. So for example, Optum Vendors has been one of our, our most strategic and, and value add investors just because they are so plugged in to healthcare. And and for a company like us, that really, you know, can't be underestimated. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. What I didn't hear you say, and I sometimes do hear this from founders is something along the lines of mentorship or coaching or like higher level insight and pattern recognition that comes from looking across many companies Mm -hmm. Instead of being like super deeply focused on just one, where do you turn for that kind of, of perspective in your life? Or do you, you know, do, do you think of mentorship for you as, as being important? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I think our board is, is quite helpful for, for this, you know, they've just seen so many other scenarios and right. Like org structures and, you know, when to hire X type of executive. And it is really, really valuable to be able to lean on them for exactly like you said, pattern matching and, and comparables. That is actually really quite helpful. It, it can definitely short circuit a lot of decision-making so that you don't have to start from square zero. A lot of the things that we're doing, you could maybe even argue most things are solved problems. Um, I think you could argue that for a lot of companies that are just actually a lot of, a lot of the work that you have to do to build a company is actually, you know, it's been done before. And so I think leaning on other folks that have, that have that experience is obviously really, really beneficial when you can. And yet there's also the people side of building a business. And sometimes it's the interpersonal dynamics that are more challenging than solving a business problem or a technical problem. Like sometimes the the feelings that we have and the intensity, especially in a startup environment can compound that. Are there folks that you turn to, you know, for help when you're sort of wrestling with a complex interpersonal issue? Yeah, I think there are a couple trusted folks on our, within our investor base that I chat with when there are people issues that arise. I think a lot of that is, as much as possible, trying to role play almost mm -hmm. and kind mm -hmm. of putting yourself in the other person's shoes to really have empathy for them and understand sort of like the situation that they're in and 
really trying to get into their headspace of like, why are they thinking that way? Why are they acting this this way? And yeah, it's actually, it's funny. A lot of Gail's book on, I think it's called the, the, the high growth uh, handbook. There's a section that talks about how CEOs end up becoming sort of like the, the like chief psychologist or a psychiatrist or something like that, I think is how he put it. Essentially chief therapist and mediator. And I think that that is definitely really has been accurate in my case in that a lot of what I think managing ends up being is trying to resolve some of those situations, whether it's it's a miscommunication or you know somebody doesn't understand why the goals are set this way or all the types of scenarios I think end up end up to your point being being people issues and are really, really important obviously to handle correctly because at the end of the day, our team is our most important asset. I mean, our, our team is our, is our business, really. We can't function without, without our, our teammates. So I think that's, you know, it's, it's really important to, to, to invest there. So when you think about leadership and, and yourself as a leader, are there maxims or touch points or North Stars that, that you turn to for elements of leadership that matter to you. And I, I'll give you one of mine, which was actually inspired by my mom. So I'm one of seven kids and my mom just basically had no idea where anyone was <laughs> at any given time. It was like too many people to keep track of, but we all did really well. And the Ivy League grads and doctors and just different markers of success and people ask her how she did it. And she'll say that her approach to parenting was loving neglect. And I've kind of, and her point is like, hey, I'm here for you. If you really, really need me, I am here. And otherwise, if you're good, like I've got other stuff going on. (laughs) So you let me know when you need me. And I sort of think about that for myself as a leader. Our team is outstanding. And I am there the second they need me. But otherwise, it's like, go do your thing. We've agreed on what the primary goal is. And I completely trust you to figure out the right way to achieve it. So sometimes I think about loving neglect. Like if I boil down one element of my leadership style, that would be one of them. Do you have a version of that for yourself? I really love that one. And I think it's, it's also very eloquent. So I don't, I don't know that I'm going to be able to match that on the spot. But in terms of Leadership qualities that I think we value at Medallion and look for, and I think it's an overused term and maybe a little bit cliche, but the whole sort of servant leadership concept, I do really subscribe to that. I think it's important that people see that dictators are not sort of right just telling, ordering people around and and kind of telling people what to do, but really empowering and doing, I think that what that can often mean is doing the work that no one else wants to do. And also showing people that leading by example, again, again, these are sort of very obvious ones, but, but I do think they're really important and very easy to say in practice. And I think pretty hard to do sometimes, you know, a great example is like, is, you know, work ethic. If you want people on the team to work hard, then as a leader, if you're not working hard, like, you know, I think that's a common, I think probably common way that leaders can, can have teams that end up becoming unhappy is when they are, saying, yeah, you should, you should do this thing. And, but then they're not really doing it themselves. There's probably just a lot of, a lot of common ones like that, that I think we sort of um, take for granted, but that are really, really important. So 
Derek, I can imagine some folks listening to this interview and coming away saying, this guy went to Yale, you know, and he got into YC and he started his first company and he sold it and he started his second company and has all these fancy VCs. Was it always up and to the right or were there moments of doubt, you know, or failure or crisis or kind of like peering over the brink and really having, as you said, that mindset, this cannot fail while knowing that you might be close. Like, were there any of those, those moments that, that you kind of pushed through and transcended on this journey as well? Oh yeah. I mean, so, so many. That's actually been a really interesting thing that I've learned personally in just spending more time like, you know, out here in Silicon Valley and and now meeting a lot of folks that have built really successful businesses or have had really successful careers is that like that, that it is never fully up and to the right for really any business or any person. And so, yeah, I mean, some of the, some of those moments for me, you know, dating all the way back to like high school where, you know, applying for college, studying, as I mentioned earlier, studying for the SETs, like I have friends where it just came naturally to them. They didn't study and they took it one time and got a great score. Like that wasn't the case for me. I, I had to like work hard to study and it did not come naturally to me. And same thing was true actually at Yale. I learned how to program in high school, but I didn't, I hadn't learned sort of computer science theory or you know, certainly sort of like algorithms and data structures and a lot of the the coursework that certainly at least, you know, um, was taught at, at Yale. And so I think I came in thinking, oh, this would be, this is going to be easy because I already know how to program. And you know, there are a lot of students that actually came in and they didn't, they didn't know how and they were, and they were still trying to major in CS. And again, there, like it was not as easy as I expected. And I had to work hard and, and I, you know, I didn't do great, you know, at first and had to really kind of like work at it to get to a place where, where I was actually doing well again. And, you know, I think likewise with, with Pi, the examples there would be, we got featured on the front page of the app store. All of a sudden we've got tons of users and no way to monetize them. Right. And, and so that's, you know, that was another struggle. And I think, you know, more recently with Medallion, it's a really good problem to have, but, you know, we've grown quickly and there's just been a lot of demand for what we do. And with a lot of demand comes obviously the great responsibility of having to support that demand and service clients well. And obviously that when you're growing rapidly is a huge challenge. So I would say, yeah, there, there, have been, there have certainly been plenty of moments and, and I'm sure there are many more, but those are some of the ones that are top of mind. Thank you so much for, for sharing those. Cause I think Jay Kreps, who's the CEO of Confluent, he said, like, if you want a glamorous career, don't found a company. <laughs> like it's just, it's so hard. It's so much harder behind the scenes than, you know, than it looks like from afar. So thank you for sharing some of those grittier details. And you just talked about this runaway growth that Medallion is, is having. You went from 25 companies to a hundred inside of a year. And what I found really interesting about that was with no marketing spend, you know, and you describe this as truly organic, truly word of mouth. We share more about that. Like why are your customers so determined to tell other people and other companies that they should partner with Medallion, right? Like that's not typical consumer or customer behavior to 
be selling your company for you. And so I think that that was is really remarkable in Medallion's journey, and I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, I think the biggest thing comes down to the fact that we're solving a real pain point. That's really the biggest thing. One phrase, again, to use another truism is, is the whole, you know, painkiller versus vitamin. I think, you know, we're absolutely selling real painkillers because the operational problems that we're solving, they need to be fixed and actually, you know, solved before you can actually launch in, in new markets and expand your business um, as a healthcare company. And so for that reason, there are these really fundamental building blocks to their businesses. And we've had a you know, three-person company sign up almost $50,000 contract with us. And so we instantly became you know, their largest vendor. I'm actually not even sure that the founders themselves were paying them, them themselves that much money. And so that is kind of just another anecdote that underscores how much of a true unlock this can be when when solved for, for these companies. The really big kind of tailwind behind all of this is COVID slash telehealth. So before COVID, uh, telehealth adoption was definitely certainly well above what it was a decade ago. But if you look at what's happened post-COVID, telehealth has actually leveled off at about 38x what it was prior to COVID. 38x is like, it's pretty insane, right? It's not, that's not double, it's not 10x, it's not 20x. It's, you know, so that that's really pretty insane when you really think about it. And so I think because of that, there's all these new companies, both startups as well as very established healthcare companies that are moving to telehealth. And as a result, they've got all these you know, new operational challenges. And that's that's really what the, the sort of problem that we have risen to try to meet. I am really curious about the fact that you took so much risk early in your career. You know, and, and you talked about your parents both going to Yale and your your they both got PhDs, your dad as a professor. And those are really amazing successes. And in some ways, those paths are also brightly illuminated paths too. They're not easy, but they're sort of well-trodden. Other people have been able to do it. And you went and started a company and then you did it again. And it takes a lot of courage to step off of the path that most people take. And Yale, as amazing as it is, is not probably the first university people would think of as a breeding ground for entrepreneurs. That's probably Stanford or even MIT. And so it, I'm just thinking of you deciding to do something really different than what I imagine most of your contemporaries decided to do. And how did you get mentally prepared for that? How did you get yourself to a place where you felt comfortable taking the leap? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. Not one, honestly, that I spent a lot of time sort of like introspecting on like myself, but I think that it really comes from a place of loving to build things. And I think I just got that bug in high school and I just became really obsessed with it. You know, I remember that there were periods of time well, really, honestly, I think most of my time in college where I was sort of wasn't a big party or anything like that. And, and so like on like, you know, Friday nights, Saturday nights, I would literally with one of my friends, you know, and I would we'd be like in the in the library sort of posted up there and, and I would be working on things like after I got all my you know homework done and everything, 
on these different side projects. And it never really bothered me. I mean, I think there are maybe, maybe moments where it felt like a little bit lonely, but I think you kind of push past those moments because you know that there's something greater on the other end. But I definitely, I wouldn't sort of lie and say that there aren't, you know, it's still moments today where you've got a down day and you feel like you've got no one to talk to or no one really understands what you're going through. I think it actually has gotten easier over time. Like I think as I've been doing this for longer and and sort of understand more about kind of how it works and also just have more of a support group, honestly, more, more people, more friends. We've got a bigger team. This kind of never a dull moment now, but there were definitely, you know, points earlier on where it was a little bit more challenging mentally, but yeah, I would just come back to sort of this, this passion for wanting to create something, wanting to see something new in the world that really kind of just like continuously kept me honestly just obsessed and like sort of addicted. Because I I, th- I think to do something like this, you kind of really have to have an element of obsession for sure with it. And and otherwise, somewhere along the way, you end up saying, no, this is, this is, why am I doing this? This is kind of silly. There's so many other things I could be doing. Yeah. That's so much fun to hear about that. And I think it's just awesome that you felt a lot of conviction as you described it to build things and to solve particular problems. And that conviction outweighed any fear that you had or any draw toward conformity. So Derek, as we wrap up here, one final question, which is, you know, as we've discussed, Breakline focuses on enabling women, people of color and veterans to transition to careers, primarily in the tech sector. And just like leaps that you have made that required that courage, they need courage too. You know, any transition can be a time of vulnerability. So thoughts from you, you know, words of wisdom, words of inspiration for folks who are making their own leaps. And as you said, like might have a day where they sort of question whether or not they can do it or have some crisis of confidence. Thoughts that you'd want to share with those people in particular? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest thing is momentum. It's getting something going. Again, using simple analogies, but once you just get a rock to you tip it and starts rolling down a hill, it's going. I think about that a lot as it relates to startups. Like the, the moment you buy the domain name for $12 a year, like the moment that you just write down in the Google Doc, the business plan. And of course, it's going to change, you know, a thousand times from the first one that you write to when you actually start the company. I think it's just getting things going, starting to write the first lines of code for the website. I really think that people spend a lot of time wondering if the idea is right. Is this the right idea? Is this the right thing I should be working on? Am I good enough? Can I really do this? And I think it's just breaking past a lot of that doubt to just start trying things. And I think in really small ways, because obviously the advice there is not to go quit your job when you've got, you know, sort of just an idea and and kind of are still in exploratory mode. I think it's about trying to, in nights and weekends, to the extent possible, spend an hour on here, 30 minutes here to just really, again, get it going. And I think that that's really how all big things end up being created. I love that response. I hadn't heard that before. That was really interesting. Derek Lowe, CEO of Medallion, thank you so much for being here in the Breakline Arena. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. 
And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. 